Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. Stephen, welcome to the podcast, mates. Great to have you with me. Thanks, Owen. Uh, really looking forward to it. We're going to talk about uh, commercial property. We're going to talk about all the different types of direct property, probably REITs and funds and other types of things which will be making their way into the conversation. And there's so much to talk about because the last three to five years have been probably unprecedented, at least from where I sit. It seems like there's every talking point imaginable. So we've got a fair bit to cover, but I thought maybe for listeners who are new to this space, I know a lot of our listeners invest through SMSFs or sophisticated investors and may already have exposure to direct property. And chances are everyone that listens to this will know Charter Hall in one way or another. But can you just tell us how do you describe what direct property is, even as an asset class or as a vehicle, uh, to someone who really doesn't have that much familiarity with it? Sure. And look, it, it is a good one to help set the scene as well, Owen. Um, the way I explain it is if you've ever been into an office building, I'm sitting here at number one Martin Place now, if you've been into a big shopping mall, a Coles or Woolworths, these are all types of direct properties. And what people don't often realise is that um, you can actually invest into these, even as a high net wealth retail investor, as, as you said, a self-managed super fund. So it doesn't need to just be residential, which, um, as we all know, this country does have a love affair with residential. And part of my job is trying to explain these other types of property asset classes can actually deliver a lot to an investor's portfolio over the medium to long term. And I think we're going to find that out throughout the rest of this conversation. I like that. I've got a few more quick fire or like short answer questions, if you like, mate. Uh, the first one is, can you name one investor that you have met personally or even just someone that you've spoken to through industry and what you have learned from them. I'm going for like, I'm trying to think of people who you admire or people that you have just like a lot of respect for in your space and what you took away from an interaction with them. Look, I'll probably give you two if that's okay. Um, Absolutely. The fortunate position of working with one of the founders of Charter Hall very closely for a long period of time and I guess one of the things I most admire is how he always put the investor right at the forefront of every decision he made. And and that's something that's really stuck with me. Um, Ultimately, we're managing other people's money. And 
sometimes in difficult times, you've just got to be upfront and tell people how it is. And ultimately, they'll, they'll understand that and respect you more for it. Probably the, the second one, and we've got well over 20,000 investors in the business that I look after. It's very personal what we're delivering for them. And I've sat opposite them in lunches, having coffee before our big investor days. And I've had people come up and tell me how the distributions from our funds have paid for family holidays. I've had retirees telling me how important it is for their lifestyle. And then I've had everything in between. And it it makes it very real what we're doing. And I guess it helps focus the whole team on what we're trying to deliver for our clients, which is managing someone else's money and delivering regular income and preserving their capital as well. That's great. I really like that. And I like that you brought that up. A lot of people get a bit nervous when they go out in front investors, but it seems like it might be the opposite for you, uh, which is great. Uh, So the final little quick one I've got here is just obviously investing, at least from where I sit, I think of it as like this continuous learning journey where every year, every day you learn something new. And I think like the intellectual curiosity that comes with this is almost second to none. But I'm curious what you've learned for you, like for yourself personally, what you've learned about investing over the past year? Probably not to take anything for granted. If we were having this discussion 18 months ago, we wouldn't have been talking about the fastest interest rate increases in a generation, Credit Suisse no longer existing as a standalone um, firm. And I think you can't set the businesses up to fight what happened at the last uh, economic period of volatility. So for me, it, it's just absolutely reinforced in my mind that risk management is even more important in the good times because you don't know what's coming down the pipe. Um, by and large, no one forecast a global pandemic and those that had set the portfolios up to be more conservative did, did better. And for me, you can't get ahead of yourself. And as I'm sure you've had many speakers on this show, Owen, say um, it's, it's basically impossible to forecast the future with any degree of certainty. So The best I can do is take as many of the known risks out of the investments that we manage and back yourself that that will give the best risk-adjusted returns over the longer time periods. I really like that. My um, co-host on our weekend show, Drew, he always says, like, you just, you can't really prepare for a certain future. You have to prepare for all of them, which is like, it's a really interesting way of just being able to be flexible, but also have the, the structure to withstand something like that. So I, I really like that, mate. Okay, so one thing that we do talk a bit about on the show is the difference between listed and unlisted assets, private and public markets. We talk a lot about this, but in your role in particular, I know that you've done a bit of education around this for folks that are still like on this journey of discovery when it comes to property and investing. And you've got this great video on the website in the part of the education hub, which basically you go through and you explain all of the things that you would want to look at if you were an investor looking at a direct property fund. And I'm hoping you can step us through that. And as you go, if you can unpack some of the jargon of what exactly people should look at and why those things matter. And then if I have any follow-up questions, which I probably will, I'll probably just try and get you to cover them off for my own learning as well, because this is something that I'm not very familiar with. Yeah. And look, you're right. Um, Finance, property types as well. Um, We seem to love jargon. You you can't help it. So I'll do my best to keep it pretty straightforward. So for property, um, the first thing to note is that whether it's a listed form or an unlisted form, 
ultimately, the only way that your value is going to generate and, and returns maximised is through growing the cash flows that, that property generates. At Charter Hall, we're absolutely agnostic to the different structures. And we believe that depending on what an investor or the, the advisor is trying to achieve for their client, they both have merits, um, positives and negatives as part of a portfolio. So why don't I start with some of the um, advantages of direct property? So you get long-term leases in direct property. So those asset classes I talked about at the start of today's show, you can get 10, 15, even 20-year leases, for example, in industrial. In the retail space, similar, very common uh, to have long-term leases to Coles and Woolworths. But you do need to understand that whilst direct property gives fantastic levels of income, usually paid monthly or quarterly, it does have some things that you need to be aware of when you're constructing your overall portfolio. So the first is that direct property should be thought of as an illiquid investment class. Uh, I strongly believe it's absolutely critical that all managers in this sector need to put that front and centre so that people know what they're getting in for. And it doesn't mean that it's not suitable. In fact, 40% of our equity inflows are from self-managed super funds, largely because they realise they don't need 100% of their portfolios in the liquid space. The other thing I'd say is property really is a relationship business. So relationships with the tenants, relationships with the agents, with your financiers, your tenant reps, um, and to drive the best outcomes at the asset level, you need to have strong and deep relationships. And to do that, you must have people on the ground. Anyone can go buy property, but if you want to drive these outsized returns, um, I know property very well, but to think I can do Melbourne office leasing deals better than my experienced asset management team that are on their ground every day is a bit misplaced. So we've got 600 property professionals spread out through the country. So I'd encourage people to understand if they're going into property, is the manager well-resourced and do they have experts on the ground? The second thing, and I'm sure it probably comes up more frequently than it ever has, is around debt and gearing. Remember, gearing or debt is just an accelerator of returns, but it, it does come with more risk. So finding the right point and balance is very important. And Look, we think the right level of gearing is around that 25 to under 40% level. It's at those levels we think you can get the, the benefits of the extra leverage, but without taking on too much risk. And we always keep a material buffer between the loan covenants and where we've set the fund gearing at. And I know, and it was a great disclaimer, actually, one of the best I saw at the start of this video <laughs> around past performance, and it kind of runs counter to that. And I would say, though, not specifically for each investment, but understand, does the manager deliver on the investment thesis that they've said? How have they performed? It isn't a guarantee, absolutely not, but it will give you a bit of a look through to how experienced they are in the sector, how good the team is, and do they have that long track record of delivering not just the returns, but importantly, what they say they will do in the investment document, whether it's an IM or a PDS or if it's a listed product. So I don't know if that gives you a little bit of a, a colour, And Do you want me to go into some of the difference between the listed space and the unlisted? I would actually like that. So because you mentioned liquidity or illiquidity being like the thing that's like waved front and centre to investors. Uh, can you just explain that and how you do that, like the, like the different structures just for people that aren't familiar? Yeah, and look, the company I work for, Charter Hall, is actually a listed property 
stock on traded on the ASX. We also have three other listed vehicles invested into social infrastructure, retail, and a big diversified fund. The first thing to note, as the name sounds, listed, you can get in and out of them on a daily basis because they're traded on the ASX. So big advantage, liquidity. So you can put it in the liquid part of your bucket. Um, we still do say that real estate, and I'm sure unlike most people that come on your show, investing is for the medium to long term. You shouldn't be trying to do short term in and out. Some that almost by definition, that's trading, not not investing. So it can give you that good piece of liquidity, but that liquidity does come with more volatility. So the listed space, you get not only property experts investing into it, but you get general equities investors who can be the dominant movers of the market. And they can easily come into the property sector, but just as quickly leave it. So you need to not be too concerned with the daily fluctuations in in the pricing of your investment. The unlisted space traditionally gets independent valuations done every six months at Charter Hall. We had over 1,600 assets independently valued at December, and they're primarily the points when the valuations move. So it is a different type of investment in terms of the liquidity and the valuation frequency. But importantly, what what also binds them together, I think that's quite, quite important. Commercial real estate does generate good income returns for clients. So in the direct space, a bit like the listed, um, it's quite common to get 5 to 6% per annum income. The other thing which people may see the headlines around immigration, demographics, real estate, regardless of the structure or the wrapper you put around it, demographics are your friend. And we've recently reopened borders. I believe the government was targeting 235,000 net migration. Many people think it'll be closer to 300,000. Whether it's a, a listed product, an unlisted product, more people is terrific for the long term. Um, more shopping centres you need, more office properties, more industrial sheds to ship the online goods. So whilst there are differences, there, there are a number of things that do bind it together. So it really depends what the investor is trying to achieve, and that will probably more influence the investment structure that they want to get it. Yeah, one of the things we talk about a lot, I like how you said it, like when you've got the, the listed or like the REITs and things like that on the ASX, you get those equity investors who are associated with like share investing and it tends to be more volatile. And that's why on the show, when we talk about portfolio construction, we talk about uh, direct property is in a different bucket because it's not as volatile typically. I guess, can you talk to when an investor is looking at all the kind of the different jargon in the industry? So things like the things I'm going to call out, if you could just kind of like fire these off as your best explanation, yeah. uh, things like, like whale, syndicates, vacancy rates, and I mean, there's a few others like cap rates and incentives. If you go through maybe just even a few of those to try and just set the scene, because we're going to dig into those a little bit more. Sure. Look, whale or not the sea animal, whale is in W-A-L-E, so weighted average lease expiry. If it's a property, it's an average of what are the legally binding lease lengths across that asset. If you've got a larger portfolio or pool of assets, it'll typically typically be a measure of the average lease term across all those assets. The way we think of whale is that it's a measure of the income security that that property or property portfolio can generate. Think about it like this. If you've got an average lease term of eight years, I have more look through and certainty around the income streams that I'll be able to pay through to my investors 
versus a shorter lease term of, say, one to two years. The other thing with longer weighted average lease expiries, you typically can get better financing terms from the banks. So longer debt terms um, and cheaper margin. And they like it for the same reason why most of my investors are a big fan of long leases. They've got more security and more visibility to the income streams. The next one you mentioned around occupancy. Um, Occupancy and the PCA or Property Council of Australia puts out occupancy stats every six months. Um, Most of the big real estate uh, research firms will do it every quarter. And really, it's a measure of, on average, what the vacancy rate or occupancy rate is. So if I said the occupancy rate is 90% in a particular sector, it means on average 90% of that property is leased and generating income. And by definition, the other 10% is not generating income. We like to, at Charterhall, keep our buildings as full as possible for the obvious reason that it means we've got less income gaps and ultimately more income to pay through to the clients. I'll give you an example, Owen, where the office market vacancy, depending on the market, Hobart's the lowest, around 2.5% vacancy rate. In that market, we're 100% occupied. Sydney, Melbourne, you've got low double-digit vacancy rates. And we're sitting at around 97% occupancy, so only 3%. So this is not something that happens by accident. You do need to work hard as a manager to proactively get in front of your tenants, extend leases, and not wait for that period to happen. The other thing which we're we're very focused on in commercial property is the weighted average rent review or WARRR. Unlike residential property and unlike other commercial property markets throughout the globe, a key feature of the Australian market is that typically on an annual basis, you'll have contractual rental increases. The weighted average rent review is simply a measure of the average increases that kick in every year. So I'll give you an example. In industrial properties, you can often get CPI-linked rental reviews. And so every year, whatever the CPI rate is, your rent actually goes up. Great in periods like you find ourselves today with high levels of inflation. Um, in the office market, the, the they typically have fixed rental reviews uh, around that 35 to 4% annual increases. So it is still good. It means that if you're getting $100 in year one, you might get $104 in year two, $108.20 in year three, and so on. So for this reason, we're very focused on the average rent reviews because it does give you part of that inflation hedge that uh, commercial property is known for um, over different cycles. Can you maybe talk to, I think the thing that really confuses people is this idea of incentives uh, and where that sits in the broader scheme of things and how people can think about that. Yeah, so incentives are something where the landlord effectively pays an amount or reduces the rent, typically as an enticement to attract um, tenants into your property or for a sitting tenant to stay in your property. It's not that different to um, anyone with a residential mortgage. There'll be a headline mortgage rate, but depending on your borrowing quality, the bank will usually reduce it or give you basically an incentive to go with them. In real estate, the industrial market in this country isn't doesn't have very big uh, tenant incentives at the moment. Uh, with vacancy rates in the industrial and logistics market on the eastern seaboard of Australia, 
averaging around 0.6%. Um, landlords don't have to give those incentives because the supply and demand is working such a way that the landlords um, have so much demand for any vacancy that comes up. In the office market, what typically happens is that the landlords provide an incentive, particularly for new tenants, and the tenants will use this money to fund their fit out. So I'm sitting in a meeting room. They might You might need desks, partitions, IT facilities, and the landlord will usually um, write a cheque and depends on the market, depends on where supply and demand is. Uh, but that's a feature that's been part of the, the office market in this country. I've been doing real estate for 20 years and it's always, it's always been something that happens. Can you describe, uh, if we go one step deeper on vacancies, because like someone who isn't from this world might think, well, why not just reduce the rent rather than doing those things? Can you describe kind of the machinations there between property values and vacancy? Yeah, so the, the way valuers value real estate in this country is a number of methods. There's a DCF or discounted cash flow where they'll uh, forecast out 10 years worth of property cash flows, which will include everything such as leases. They'll make assumptions for any periods where the property is vacant, any tenant incentives. If the property has vacancy right now, that will reduce the cash flows. And then they assume a value in year 11. They'll also do what's called a capitalization approach, which is where they take the market rent, divide it by a return that they believe uh, marries up the risk and quality of that asset, and then they will adjust for how different the market rent is versus what the contractual leases are. And then the final one, which is comparable sales evidence. So that's that's a simple one is looking at if you have an industrial property in market X um, with these features and it's sold for four and a half, five percent capitalization rate or this uh, rate per meter, how does that compare to the properties that you've asked the valuer to manage? By and large, keeping the vacancy lower tends to maximize uh, the valuations of your asset, keeping in mind that you do want to try and push the rents up wherever you can. So the the tenant incentives, the downtime, it's all just factored into the way uh, commercial real estate is valued in this country. I find it really interesting because if you run through some examples, you can see how by using incentives or like those upfront you know, benefits to the tenant, the value of the property can be maintained, uh, which is ultimately what investors want, right? Because it's kind of like front loading the cash outflow, which is not as valuable as those rental increases from, as you say, having like lower vacancy rates and keeping uh, tenants in the properties. One final thing maybe before we move on, mate, which is this idea... Can you just describe, if we just circle back to your original point around uh, direct property versus, say, like REITs, where people can trade in and out, does, how does it work from an investor's perspective if they want to go in and out of a direct property fund? Uh, are there gates or like things like lockups where people can only get in and out at certain times? Can you just maybe fill in the community about what that means? Yeah, sure. Look, every manager has a slightly different approach to this. So... A property syndicate will typically be one, maybe a couple of properties, and it will have a fixed life, typically in around year five to year seven. The assets are sold and capital returned to investors. Um, Up until that point, there's usually no liquidity at all. For our funds, we have what's called rolling five-year liquidity or review events. 
We don't put it to a vote. Um, these are perpetual funds, so these funds will continue. But every five years, we write to investors, advisors, and say uh, the five-year liquidity event's up. You tell us what you want to do. We're managing your money. Do you want to stay invested? Do you want to partially redeem? Or would you like your capital back? And we manage to those. And the way the liquidity is delivered can be a combination of asset sales, uh, new equity, as well as if you've reduced your gearing, you might uh, re-gear it up a little bit. So I think the most important thing whenever I talk to clients around liquidity is they need to understand if they're going into a direct property investment, it should be thought of as illiquid. I've spoke to so many investors and advisors in my career where they'll say, oh, it looks like a great investment, but I might need my money back in 12 months. I say, look, that's terrific, but this isn't the investment for you. You should consider something else that is more liquid. But if you want that regular income, 5 to 6% paid monthly or quarterly, and over a 20-year period generates around a 3 to 4% capital return, then this is where direct property can add value to your overall portfolio. But um, I think it's something that big managers and Charter Hall, we're the largest manager of real estate in Australia. Um, part of my role is I always want to educate the market and people understand that it is an illiquid investment class. And if you want high quality real estate, but the liquidity, then you should potentially consider the, the listed form of it through the A-REIT market. Okay. So that was fantastic kind of overview of how you think about things and explain it so well done mate you definitely met expectations there i've got a few more like i guess topical questions for you obviously over the past three or so years we've had a global pandemic we had a, like a stock market or share market sell-off rapidly rising inflation rapidly rising interest rates there's a lot of talk in the media at least in 2022 there was about falling residential property prices and Everything just seems a bit uncertain for people. So you've kind of like had everything in a very short period of time. We've also had a war in Ukraine. And so on top of all that, we've got these, what some people might say, like structural headwinds, things like e-commerce and online trading, like working from home and all these different things that impact like some of the primary markets that people tend to think about when they think about property, which is like retail, office and industrial. So I'm hoping that maybe you can walk through the experience in recent times and how you think about those. Um, because I imagine like, obviously as a, you know, a property owner and investor yourself, like you've got some counterpoints to these, uh, but you can also like fill us in on maybe where the perception of like, this is all risky, maybe misguided. Sure. And look, uh, I'd add in, there's definitely headwinds in some sectors, but um, there's also big tailwinds as well to throw in there. So why don't I kick it off with probably the most common question I get asked, which is around the office market, work from home. And probably what I should have said back when you're asking around um, considerations when you're looking at this investment class, um, the number one thing I would say is only invest into institutional quality property. Um, talking about jargon, that's just a fancy way of saying the highest quality assets. And, and that's because regardless of the sector, these will be assets that tenants want to lease up through all different cycles. And ultimately, when as a manager, you want to sell it, they've got the deepest, most liquid pools of buyers. So moving that forward to the office market, the high quality assets continue to be leased up quite strongly. So tenants want to be in those. And if you think about the whole work from home trend, 
what COVID did was just um, moved, moved it forward dramatically in a short period of time. And we speak to a lot of CEOs, a lot of heads of property, um, heads of HR, and by and large, what they want, um, there are a few tech companies who are exceptions, they do want their teams to come together more frequently than what they were doing in COVID. They recognise the benefits around collaboration, um, innovation, information sharing. So the work from home trend isn't new, but COVID absolutely sped it up. And the assets that will struggle, in our opinion, are the secondary or lower quality assets. And I say that because if you're a major corporation, and that's by and large the type of tenants at Charter Hall we target, and you see the benefits of getting your people together at least some of the time, uh, do you think you've got more chance of doing that and a better outcome if you have great amenity, you're located near public transport, near your clients, um, not great natural light where the property I'm sitting in, um, or a lower tier asset, not convenient to get to, uh, doesn't have a nice feel, there aren't breakout areas. So more so than I've ever seen in my career, and our, our group CEO, David Harrison, has been pushing this point for many, many years, is we, we expect the biggest separation in the office market between the highest quality assets, which will continue to lease up, versus the lower quality assets, which have probably never been more at greater risk of obsolescence. So you overlay the ESG thematics. These newer properties have better environmental ratings. Uh, Neighbours, another acronym, I'm trying to not, not talk too many times, but it, it's just a fancy way of saying how well does the asset perform from an energy and water perspective. These are the type of modern assets that tenants want to be in. The old assets, in many cases, you simply can't improve the environmental ratings. So um, I would say the work from home trend uh, isn't new. And most of the people we speak to also want their team back, let's say, on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And what does that mean for overall occupancy if you want the majority or all of the people back on the same days? Not that big an impact. And there's lots of headlines around the utilisation rates of office property and how they've come off since COVID. One thing many people wouldn't realise is the office properties, even if when they're 100% leased, were never fully utilised and work from home existed then. I expect to have a holiday in three weeks with my family, so I'm not going to be in the office travelling people sick. And we've looked at the Google data, which tracks mobility, people logging in, and it's scary how much they know about you and where your office is. And if you look at some of the, the big CBD markets, and that and that's where the data is best, um, markets like Adelaide, Perth and Brisbane are around 10% or less drop-off in utilisation rates. Sydney, Melbourne, slightly more, around that 20%. But Asia Pacific is absolutely leading the way in the return to office and very different dynamics around commute times, how safe the cities are, the amenity compared to, say, some of the, the North American cities. Um, does that give you a bit of a... I could talk about the office market probably all day, but I feel like I need to give some love to the other sectors. No, no, no. That's yeah. Maybe just just one more thing that I'll double click on here is how would you know if that uh, thesis or that idea about high quality properties standing the test of time, whereas others aren't? Like, are we seeing that already in some sort of data, or what can people track? 
Um, look, you can look at occupancy rate. I'll give you an example. Many North American investors are quite negative on office, and there's some unique factors going on there. The age of their property stock is just simply very old stock. Um, the vacancy rates, if you look at a market like San Francisco, the, the last numbers I saw, vacancy was around 29.3%. Like, that's huge. Whereas you look at something like Sydney, Melbourne, is it higher than it was before COVID? Sure. But it's got a much more diverse tenant base. I'm sitting here in Sydney. The CBD continues to be improved, whether it's through Metro, new libraries, and people, we've just hired two new people in, in the team that I look after, and they want to come in. They're younger. They want to learn from people. So it it's really is through the assets performance, and it's a combination of things like the energy efficiency ratings, the occupancy levels that will show through over time and look at the types of tenants that are occupying. If you're looking at an office fund, have they been able to attract governments, um, ASX top 100 companies, big private entities with great balance sheets and cash flows? Because that tells you a lot about the enduring nature of those assets. If they're doing short-term leases to speculative startups, there's a, a reasonable chance that there's a reason that the top tenants don't want to be in those locations or those specific assets. So you mentioned before industrial had like 0.6% vacancy or something. I hadn't heard that before. I guess that might confuse a lot of people potentially who think that we're kind of, maybe they thought that there was a bit of a crisis or like the e-commerce was meaning that like I don't know, there was more efficiencies behind the scenes. I don't know. Like that seems very low to me. Is that typical? And I guess, is this symptomatic of COVID or will it, like, so will it stay like this? Will it not? Can you maybe fill us in there? Yeah. And like what I said around office and work from home, um, COVID didn't create the e-commerce trend in the industrial logistics market, but it absolutely sped it up. In, in Some forecasters think it moved it forward five to 10 years. So. Think about this. Every time you click on something to buy online, um, you're not going into a physical shop, obviously, but it does need to come from somewhere. And it typically comes from warehouses, distribution centres, and COVID specifically enhanced three, three trends. So e-commerce got a leg up. So the amount of required um, distribution and warehouse space increased dramatically. The second is it highlighted some of the supply chain issues and fragilities in the market. So a lot of governments throughout the world and corporates have realised that uh, there is a benefit in being self-sufficient in certain products, whether it's medicines, whether it's in food logistics, whether it's in um, PPE. And so you are seeing a bit more of onshoring. So it's a little bit of a reversal of some of that globalisation, just-in-time infantry trends which were all the rage for decades, where companies saw what happens in COVID and anyone that I was renovating a house at the time, it took a long time to get ovens in and lounges and all this sort of stuff. So it's not just what companies missed out on in terms of lost sales when the lead times got too big, but it's the brand damage that they wore because people got frustrated they couldn't get it. So companies as part of this um, are keeping more stock. So... If you keep more stock on hand, you need more space to store it. So it's a combination of um, dramatic growth in e-commerce, which increases the demand for offer, uh, distribution warehouse, um, onshoring. 
So things being brought back from overseas into the Australian market and the need for greater levels of stock, which have really driven the demand. And the other thing is, and it's a bit counterintuitive, you look at Australia on a map, it's, it's huge, but we're all congregate around major CBDs. And I'll give you an example of Sydney where I sit right now. Um, to the north and south, we're bounded by national parks. Um, the east, um, it's the ocean. And on the west, uh, there's the mountain ranges. So there isn't as much zoned and ready to deploy industrial land that the government simply can't get it out quick enough to match the supply and the demand balance that's needed. So, look, rents went up 22% in 2022. That's phenomenal in industrial logistics. And it does tell you that that low level of vacancy has led to our landlords being able to extract higher rents. We don't expect 22% to continue for the long term, but we do think the rental growth forecast for industrial logistics are as good as they've, they've been in the last 20 years. So has then, okay, so let's switch to this last one, which is retail. Has the growth of that come at the cost of retail? Um, some of it absolutely has. And you did see that with a lot of the listed retail REITs uh, through the pandemic. But it's interesting. You, you need to think of retail probably as two different buckets. Um, you've got the discretionary. So think of your specialty stores, your electronics, uh, your fashion. So things that people have the ability to turn off or on more depending on their personal and the economic circumstances. The other type of retail is non-discretionary. So think of things such as food. So Woolworths, Coles, no matter what's happening in inflation and people's job prospects, uh, they're going to continue to demand food. So what we saw through the pandemic was the demand for neighbourhood shopping centres. And enabled shopping centres, uh, just your local Coles, Woolworths, Audi, maybe with a few specialty food retailers hanging off it, um, do extremely well. And your bigger shopping centre malls, those specialty tenants, they're the ones that struggled. And look, the outlook for both in my view, is slightly different. If we do go into economic downturn, and there are many forecasters that think whether it's a recession or not, we're going to go into a slowdown, you do need to think that um, the non-discretionary part of the retail bucket should be and generate better returns through that period of the economic cycle. So I'd also talk about Bunnings. I love Bunnings. I go in there, I come out with a chainsaw or a ladder I didn't need. But they've basically got a, a monopolistic position. And so there are certain nuances within this sector. Uh, we're a big believer in the non-discretionary retail space, and we think that will continue to perform very strongly. If investors wanted to get exposure to that, which of the charter hall funds or REITs offer that and in what proportion? Yeah, a, a big uh, listed retail REIT, CQR, has a, a fantastic distribution. You know, I think last time I looked at it, it was over 6%, comes with regular liquidity. And it's got a very diverse uh, property portfolio, heavily backed by that uh, neighbourhood shopping centres, that non-discretionary retail. So that's a multi-billion dollar fund. In the unlisted space, we've got something called the, the Long Whale Fund. We, there you go. We even like to put our acronyms in the name of the products, which does have that non-discretionary retail as well. We'll also pick up um, service stations, some uh, pubs and hospitality as well, which are very resilient through different uh, parts of the cycle. 
And we also have a large, very large diversified REIT called CLW, which does have allocations into that non-discretionary retail as well as industrial office and other sectors as well. How about so to the long whale REIT? Can that that invest across everything? Yes. So we've got a listed version, which is the big brother and the unlisted version. So the listed version has an ASX ticker code of CLW. Uh, the unlisted fund is a much smaller version. But what attracts people to these type of assets is um, it allows property experts like Charter Hall to tilt the allocations over time to take advantage of some of those um, trends, which we talked about, those structural tailwinds, and also to move it away from some of those sectors which, in our view, are more likely to experience headwinds. How does it work with the listed version and the unlisted version? Are they co-mingled assets or like how does that work in the actual portfolio itself? Are they the same thing, whether you're in the listed or unlisted version? No, look, they do have slightly different investment mandates. Um, At Charter Hall, we will own assets in joint ventures with other funds, um, but it really does come down to the specific mandate uh, and also which funds have investment capacity at that time and the appetite for it. So we definitely own some assets in joint venture with a listed vehicle, but look, they've got a great investment team and a specific mandate that they deliver to and as does the portfolio manager in my team. Question with how you actually attract those super high quality tenants, like the ones that you said, like ISX 100 and governments and all that. Is it a fierce competition for landlords to go and find these people to build those relationships and to speak, I think you call it like heads of property or something like that. Like, is that how this industry works based on the relationships? Like it's talking to people, when's your lease coming up? Do you want to come to this new facility, like space that we're building? Or is that how it typically happens? Yeah, I think there's two things I'll just draw out there if I can. So the relationships are critical because if I'm talking to you, Owen, and you're a major tenant, I need to understand what your drivers are, what you're prioritising. Do you need money to refit your property? Do you need to um, grow your, your footprint? And if I don't know that, I can't put solutions in front of you that are going to deliver what you need. Um, but equally, if I don't have the, the quality real estate and the type of product you want, no matter how much of a nice guy you think I am or Charter Hall, you're simply not going to take yeah. a, a real estate space, regardless of the sector that doesn't meet your requirements. And one of the real strengths of the Charter Hall Group is that we are, because we are multi-sector, we've got so many touch points in, and I'll give you a, a real-life example, um, Coles. Um, we have a hell of a lot of their uh, neighbourhood shopping centres. We have their distribution facilities in many states, as well as their head office down in Turak uh, in Melbourne. So throughout the different uh, touch points, we have a very close and deep understanding of what they require. But what they are looking for, these top-tier tenants, is strong environmental ratings. If you open any listed vehicle or um, entity, the front one or two pages will talk about their views on carbon, ESG, the environmental impact. And one of the things they're all looking to do is through their use of space, moving to environmentally sustainable buildings. And if you then take it to the government side, and Charter Hall has more exposure to government tenants than anyone else in the market. I've got a over $2 billion office fund where 60% of the tenants are government, federal or state or territory. Um, another office fund where it's a third of the income from government tenants. 
And what they basically have as a base case is unless you achieve a certain level of environmental rating, you don't even make their shortlist in terms of buildings that they will consider to go into the office space. So it's about knowing what your clients want, having the relationships with them, but then that final piece, having that, that high-quality property, which, to be frank, high-quality tenants typically want high-quality real estate as well. I've got two questions which might be a bit easier, a bit quicker for you to answer, which is like when um, you speak with investors, and obviously everyone should speak to their financial planner, but when you speak to investors and they're thinking about like the listed version of property or direct property, how do, uh, do people, are people typically thinking about where they allocate uh, or how much? I think there was a chart that you had in an article you did ages ago around how people are allocating or how professionals are allocating or something like this. How do you think about that? Yeah, look, it, it does. It really does vary. And just think about that disclaimer at the start, uh, it, it, it rings loud and clear. But if you look at some of the biggest investors in the world, their, their real estate bucket is around 8 to 15%. And depending on their matching of liabilities to assets and cash flows, it may have a particular tilt. Um, the, some of the largest investors in the world do have quite a big allocation to the unlisted space because they put it in their liquid bucket, they get that regular income, and they know they don't need to trade in and out of it. The allocations for many retail or SMSF or high net wealth clients uh, in particular, and many high net wealth clients have actually made a lot of their money through real estate. They may have a slightly higher weighting than those big super funds or pension funds that have to match the, the regular liabilities, the redemptions, and so on. So it does vary. What you did see uh, when the equity markets came down was that a number of the bigger investors hit their real estate allocation, not because of anything real estate did, but if your equities values and your bond portfolios go down, by definition, everything else goes up. But those funds which had an allocation to unlisted property, by and large, uh, had a better 12-month return up to 31 December than those that didn't because of those low correlation, lower volatility aspects, which I mentioned at the start. Yeah, a lot of the... Um what we're starting to see with more advisors is like to have an liquid and, and direct or illiquid sleeve in almost every asset class these days. And so that happens with property too, with like A REITs or G REITs and direct property. And so they do have some liquidity on part of the portfolio for their clients. And we see that quite a bit. And fair enough, I totally get what it's always a tricky question for me to ask that because I know it all depends on per, people's circumstances. So always get a, a personal advice. We're completely agnostic. Our view is. Our job is to provide the best quality real estate uh, investment options to our clients, whether you've got 200 million with us or 20,000, and it's up to the, the end investor to choose how they want to do it. As I said, I'm sitting and employed by a listed vehicle. We've got three other listed vehicles, but the majority of our capital that we manage is in the unlisted space. So recognising that people and institutions will have different requirements as they move through their investment timeframe or, or different preferences. For sure. One of the things that you mentioned at the top of the show was that the gearing rates are around about 25 to 40%. And I've heard that from researchers as well, something in that range. And I think a lot of people will be thinking, well, how do you come to that? Like, and how do you measure gearing? Is like gearing measured at the portfolio level? Is it measured at the property level? So I'm curious, two questions is how do you think about, how do you measure that? Maybe just for people that don't know. And then secondly is, 
like how did you come to 25 to 40% being a good range when you could do more and you could get higher returns or you could do less and be safer, you know what I mean? Yeah. I, I, let's talk about how we measure it first. So the gearing percentage is simply the, the level of debt over the value of the assets. We never cross-collateralize across different investor pools. That's very important. No professional manager should or would do that. But you may have a very big diversified portfolio. So uh, we look after a fund called the Direct Industrial Fund Number 4, which is 60 assets, $3.5 billion, and the debt facility covers the whole portfolio. So that gives you flexibility to buy, sell things, and you manage into an overall risk return level that you're comfortable with. That's a nice lead into the second thing. Um, if for the last three years, if you had higher gearing, all else being equal, you would have delivered your investors significantly, in many cases, higher levels of return because it, it's just that higher leverage. But the way we always think about it is, and you touched on as well, if you have no, no debt, lower risk. And it's where the two uh, intersect, where we think it gives you that balance. It's what level of return are you going to get for the level of risk? So below that 25%, we think you probably can comfortably take on some debt and generate some higher returns. And we're looking through cycle returns here, medium to long term. But once you get start to get above 40%, your headroom or the gap between the gearing level at the fund and where the banks and where you've negotiated the loan covenants, in our view, um, it gets too narrow. So you never want to be in a situation where as a professional manager, regardless of the asset class, you're not in control of the assets and your own destiny. And where people have got themselves in trouble is where they've got too much debt. And there's a good saying, there's only one way to go broke, and it's you basically borrow too much. If you don't have any debt, you can't go broke. And that 25 to 45% gives you a benefit through the cycle of slightly higher income, capital growth, but significant buffers to where the, where the banks put the, the ICR and LVR covenants and does that explain it? Yeah, it does. Because um, when I did a bit of research into this and we looked at funds and property managers throughout the GFC, it seemed to be those that were around about the 30% mark that tend to fare better than anyone else. And so that kind of resonates with some of that, that research that I did back in the day. Okay, I've got two more questions. They're more personal, actually. And um, it's more so for you to talk about, because you've had quite a distinguished career, right? To talk about I guess one of the things is like some of the deals that you're proud of or one of the deals that like you're proud of, I actually threw some of the research that I did on you and the like the charter business and what you do. I actually went past a building here in Melbourne, which I believe is a charter hall building. And I remember reading about it and the story about it during COVID getting built and all that sort of stuff. And it's a pretty special thing when you can work in the space that you do and you can walk past these buildings and you can be like, oh, I helped negotiate that deal or I got this done or we managed that. So I'm just curious if like any of those jump out at you. Yeah, look, uh, one of the look, I've been at Charter Hall now for over 13 years. So I, I never thought I'd be at any company so long, but it, it it does show you how much I love the sector and the place I work. One of the things which I'm most proud of, which was earlier in my time at Charter Hall, was we actually took over a, an unlisted property fund from another manager. And it was in some pretty big trouble at the time in terms of too much debt, like we just talked about, valuations which were three years old and some big risks coming up in the leasing. And it wasn't an easy portfolio to take on, but 
we did turn it around. And ultimately, those investors who I think were probably a lot greater risk than they had perhaps realised generated some really strong returns because of the, the effort that the team and our asset managers and investment managers put in. Probably the other thing I'd look, I'd say I'm, I'm quite proud of it. It's not a specific thing, but I've been doing this, as I said, for over 13 years, and we haven't um, had too many steps. You always do learn. You don't get everything right all the time. But it's not a case of um, coming in to do the short-term win, passing on to someone else and um, letting them deal with problems. I think myself and the team have very much taken the view that we are in this for the long term. Investors will thank us um, if we missed out on some of those higher returns with the higher gearing. Well, you know what? In a period where interest rates have risen dramatically, I'd much rather have started where we did. And I won't name the manager. I saw someone present a couple of years ago and they said, if you don't take every dollar of debt and gear the fund to the maximum, you're an idiot. I I, I struggle to get my head around how they're going to manage um, a different uh, world around gearing and interest rates that we're in now. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so the last one is probably the hardest question of all. It's one that everyone seems to find difficulty with. I still don't have an answer to it myself, to be honest, mate, which is just a bit more philosophical, which is, What's one thing that you believe about finance, investing, business, life, whatever, that few people would agree with you on? Yeah, that, that, that is a real tough one. And I, I don't know. I'll, I'll give you a property view at the moment and then I might see if I can expand it into probably something a, a little bit more philosophical. So on the property side, the, the general thematic is the industrial rents are going to continue to do unbelievably well and you want as short-term leases as you can. I think that view needs to be balanced and portfolios should have some longer-term leases in them because it's all well and good to target um, what you think is going to deliver. But like we said earlier, no one has a crystal ball about the future. Things can and do change. So I think tempering some of that aggressiveness towards shorter-term leases, and that's what we've done at Jodal, we've continued to have some longer-term leases to balance it out, is probably not the standard way people are constructing industrial portfolios at the moment. The second thing, I I think it is quite widely held, but sometimes it's always good just to remind people, I'm in property, but I'm in finance. I just deliver the investment solutions through the property sector, which myself and the team know intimately. I don't think we should ever lose sight that we are custodians of other people's capital. It's not our money. We've been given a huge responsibility to generate returns for them, uh, importantly, to preserve their capital. And I think people should never lose sight that we're in it to serve the investors, not in it to see what we as finance professionals can get out of it. So I think as long as you put the investor at the centre of everything you do, you'll have a fantastic career, but it is important to get the order right. The fantastic career comes because you do the right thing from the investors, um, not the other way around. Yeah, I love that, mate. And it speaks to what you learned from co-founder of Charter Hall. So, yeah, it's a great way to loop it back. Uh, I've got to say thanks to you for joining us today, but also thanks to the Australian Shareholders Association who put this together, Charter Hall being a sponsor of the ASA event. I'm always proud to have the ASA connection through the RAS podcast because it enables us to meet and talk about these things, mate. And if anyone is interested in joining the ASA, please check out the show notes because there is a link to join the ASA and get involved with upcoming events and shareholder advocacy and those types of things. Mate, it was, it was my absolute pleasure. 
to have you on the show. So uh, thanks for ki- coming along and, and sharing some of your wisdom. Thanks, Owen, and um, you asked some really good questions and I've really enjoyed my time here. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest, now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.